0: You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church for unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. Well, I am excited that we do have many of our Blazers back and Bulldogs are getting started next week, but... If you're a parent in this neighborhood uh, and around the city, Birmingham City School started back on August second. So just finished up the third week of school. It's the first time in a year and a half that our kids have been in school five days a week, uh, which. Probably all the parents are rejoicing, but uh, the kids are not right now. At least our kids, uh, when it was virtual school time, all they wanted to do was go to school. And now that it's go to school time, five days a week, all they want to do is virtual school. And it's created this, uh, a lot of conversations in the Pew household about what are legitimate reasons to stay home from school. And uh, as a kid who often uh, played hooky and acted sick, I'm sympathetic to these conversations, uh, but we did have a kid uh, who needed to stay home, uh, had an ear infection a few weeks ago. And I told him that if you stay home, there is a pew tradition when you stay home sick from school. Uh, when I was a kid, the first thing I would do is watch The Price is Right and then watch The Lion King. And so uh, I, would don't know if, I don't think the price is right, it's still on, um, but I told my son that if you stay home, it's just a pew family tradition, you got to watch The Lion King, was thinking about that this week because of that iconic scene where Simba has left, he's grown now, Nala's come to him, told him how bad things are back with the pride, and he's out there in front of the stars, and he hears a voice from his father, right? From Mufasa, remember, remember who you are. Not near as cool sounding as James Earl Jones, but did my best there. To remember who you are is what Simba hears from the heavens. Who are you? It's an important question, isn't it? We're going to be spending the next four weeks talking about identity as we look at 1 Corinthians together. We're gonna see from the scriptures the right places to find our identity, that being ultimately in Jesus and as those who remain in the image of God. We're also going to identify some of the wrong places our culture tells us to find our identity, that being in our sexuality or in our relationship status. 1 Corinthians is a letter that we could spend years in, but instead we're going to cover four different texts. Again, to look at these four different themes, topics over the next four weeks that after Talking to leadership in our church, just feel like, man, this, this would be really helpful for us to narrow in before we spend, uh, Lord willing, a long time in the Gospel of Luke starting next month. So why 1 Corinthians? You know, if you're familiar with this letter, you know this is a church that had all kinds of problems. And to be honest, uh, over seven years of being a pastor here, uh, sometimes when I want to feel better about our church, I've read 1 Corinthians, just like, I'll take our problems over their problems. But as I also read this letter, some of the problems, some of this just hits really close to home. And I think there are a lot of similarities here, again, that may rightfully make us feel uncomfortable as we work through this letter. One of the main problems in the church in Corinth of the many problems that they had was that this was a culture in Corinth that was obsessed with status, with rank, with position, And that obsession had crept into the church. Again, I I think I would be right in saying if that was a problem for the church in the first century to be obsessed with status and rank and position, if that was a problem in the first century, how much more is that a problem in the 21st century? I believe we live in a culture, especially because of social media, that has taken this problem of status and injected it with steroids. When we, if you're listening, paying attention to some of the problems around us, some cultural philosophers call the problem of status that people experience a problem of status anxiety. Status anxiety, of always being consumed with how we're projecting ourselves. I remember reading years ago, someone saying, signing on to social media. I think at that point it was Facebook they were talking about as like going to your high school reunion every day. This is a problem, right? Well, we're always wanting to project ourselves. We used again, I haven't, uh, I don't follow Facebook nearly as closely as I used to. At one point when you signed on, it would ask you what your status was. Again, thinking about these things, we have this temptation to project a certain persona all the time. A temptation to build your brand, to be an influencer, to find your worth and how many followers or how many likes you get. But for us as Christians, I think we can say all of these problems come from us forgetting where our identity ultimately lies. Or maybe a better word, where our identity ultimately rests. Because if we are finding our identity in the right place, I think rest is a good word. I think we can come to rest in the one in whom our ultimate identity is to be found. It can help us find rest for our weary souls. So the main point of the sermon tonight, gonna give it to you twice here, back to preaching one point sermons here. The main point is this, when Christians forget where our ultimate identity is found, it leads to all kinds of sin in your life and all kinds of division in our church. say that to you one more time. When Christians forget where our ultimate identity is found, it leads to all kinds of sin in your life and all kinds of division in our church. So where Paul begins this letter, writing to these crazy Corinthians, is reminding them of where their identity is ultimately found. So let's look at these first few verses again together that Hillary just read for us. Paul, struggling, sinful Corinthian Christians in multiple ways here. Two of those ways he calls them those who are sanctified and he calls them saints. I think often when we hear saints, we may think of just Christians who have died long ago, right? But again, these Corinthians that are struggling with sin, he here identifies them as saints, as those who've been made holy. When we talk about sanctification, he says they're sanctified here. Normally, when I talk about sanctification, I think when most Christians talk about sanctification, we talk about this process, often this messy process of how we grow to follow Jesus more and more. I remember seeing a video uh, years ago now with someone going up an escalator and beginning to fall down the escalator and hitting every step is going, but they're still going up because the escalator is going up. And that, that, that's a great picture of what sanctification feels like often, right? This staggering and stumbling, it's painful, it's messy, it hurts, but by the Lord's grace, we continue to go up, Right? That's how we often think of sanctification. But here, again, writing to a church that's struggling with all kinds of sin, Paul's not speaking of sanctification in that way. He also, in verse 30 of chapter one, doesn't speak of sanctification in that way. Actually, most of the time, when the New Testament talks about sanctification, it's not in, that way, in the way that we often talk about it. Most often, as growing as Christians. Here in chapter one, both times Paul used the word sanctification, and the majority of times it's used in the New Testament, it's about not progressive sanctification, us growing, but definitive sanctification, that in Jesus, you are holy. In Jesus, you are already righteous. That's who you are now. In Jesus, again, you are already at the top of the escalator. You've already arrived. You are those who are sanctified. You are holy. You're a saint. You're sanctified. This is who we are. So hear me, if you're discouraged in your sin right now, Remember who Paul is writing this to. He's writing this in the immediate context, again, to Christians who are struggling with sin. And by the Lord's spirit and his providence, he's writing this to us. For you to be encouraged right now, to remember if you're in Jesus, you are a saint. You are sanctified. You are holy. You are righteous positionally in Jesus. And what Paul's gonna do here in this letter and what he does in most all of his letters is Paul's gonna say, who you are positionally in Jesus should lead to how you live practically in following Jesus. So who you are positionally now in Jesus should lead to how you now practically live as a follower of Jesus. Again, that's a summary of so much of what we read in the New Testament. And it's important we don't get those things backwards. As a pastor, it's important that I don't just show up and tell you a bunch of things to do on Sunday. You know what happened if I told you even a bunch of good things to do on Sundays? Without first reminding you who you are, you know what happened? We would turn into a bunch of Pharisees in the pews, wouldn't we? People that Jesus held his harshest language for. Those who in their performance had it down. But their hearts were far from the Lord, right? Right? How do we, as those who follow Jesus, actually follow him? We first have to remember who we are. As we said a few weeks ago, our being in Jesus must precede our doing for Jesus. Who you are in Jesus should drive what you do for him. And first, we have to remember who we are. Paul goes on to remind this sinful, messy church also of who they will be because of Jesus. Look at verse four, starting verse four. "'I give thanks to my God always for you "'because of the grace of our Lord Jesus "'that was given to you in Christ Jesus, "'that in every way you were enriched in him "'in all speech and all knowledge, "'even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, "'so that you are not lacking in any gift "'as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, Paul is being really encouraging to a church that doesn't have much good going for her at this time. And I think one of our applications, if we step back from this in our life together, is that we should work really hard to be encouraging to one another. It's hard to over encourage people. There are very few people walking around that are receiving too much encouragement. And I'm not telling you to lie or to make up things about people to encourage them. That's not helpful. But to work really hard to find things to encourage one another. To look for evidences of grace in each other's lives. That's what Paul's doing here. He's reminding them who they are. He's reminding them his love and affection for them. Paul, at the end of 2 Corinthians, so again, after writing a two really long letters to them. Actually, we have an, there's another lost letter in there. We don't have, so he's written a lot to the Corinthians and he does tell them at the end of 2 Corinthians, they need to examine themselves to make sure they're in the faith. But that's not where Paul starts. He has a lot of other things to say to encourage them towards Jesus before he calls them to question whether they actually are following him or not. And their problem is, again, they're forgetting who they are. And they need to be reminded. There's so much gospel goodness here. Look at verse eight. Even sinful folks like the Corinthians and like us, the promise is that he will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will sustain you to the end. No matter how much you're struggling right now, if you are in Jesus, the promise is that he will sustain you to the end no matter how guilty, no matter how much shame you feel right now, the promise is that you will be guiltless on the final day. Guiltless, blameless, as you stand before the holy God of the universe. If you're trusting in Jesus and found in him, what grace, what hope for sinners who are struggling like you and me that Paul lays out here from the beginning for those who are in Jesus So Paul has given them what often Bible commentators would say, indicatives. He's given them who they are in Jesus, what God has done for them in Jesus. Reminding them who they are before he tells them to do anything. But gospel indicatives, what God has done for us in Christ does lead to gospel imperatives, to commands of how we're to live now that we're in Jesus. And that's where he begins in verse 10. Look at verse 10, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So what's going on here? Again, seems if we're knowing what's going on in Corinthian culture is that so many folks in this day wanted to have their rank and status connected to a particular philosopher of the day. So they wanted people to know, hey, I followed this guy. And they feel like attaching their name to this guy would give them a certain elevated status or rank. And again, that's not just a problem out in the culture. That problem has come into the church. And so that's what's happening here. People are saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, known to be the the greatest preacher of the first century. Or I follow Peter, or Cephas is as he's called here. Or even, this is the weird one, Christ is mentioned in this list. And again, I just kind of read past that for years. But again, saying this text more, what, what seems to be going on is that there's certain people wanting to dismiss all of the apostles and just say, I follow the words of Jesus. You ever met someone who said that? Like, I just follow the red letters in the Bible. I've heard people say that numerous times. And I think that that's one of the things that Paul is dealing with here. Actually flip over to chapter three, starting in verse four, Paul picks up this idea again. For when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Look down in verse 21 of chapter three. So let let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. So I think what Paul's saying is the Lord uses his apostles, don't throw them out, but ultimately they're not the point, right? Paul's saying all we do is plant and water. The Lord is the one who calls the growth. He should be the one who gets the glory. You belong to him. Verse 23, you are Christ. Over and over again, Paul is using this language of in Christ, you belong to Christ. This is who you ultimately are. So what is the root of all their divisions? Or what's at the bottom of this? Is they're not finding their ultimate identity in Jesus. I think 2020 exposed the depth of our divisions, didn't it? And those divisions didn't stay in 2020, did they? They have spilled over with vengeance into 2021. We live in a time where everything is politicized. And it breaks my heart that I see people in the church that are often more discipled in and devoted to their political camp than to Jesus. This is a problem that we need to realize. Again, when we begin to identify with, find our identity in more in things that are outside of Jesus and actually in Him. And what can be so deceptive is that our American Christianized, cultural Christian land can begin to equate in your mind the kingdom of God with certain political parties being in power. Or again, all other numerous things that we can begin to be deceiving ourselves. That We must say, are we actually following the Jesus of the scriptures? Remember the main point. Forgetting who you are in Christ leads to sin personally in your life and to divisions corporately. Paul asks a rhetorical question in verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? The answer is no, right? Christ isn't divided. So his people shouldn't be divided either. And I think we need to hear this as a church that longs for, has prayed for, Desires more diversity, ethnically, culturally, socioeconomically, generationally, educationally. All those things are cool to talk about desiring until you have them. And then when you begin to have them, things begin to get more difficult. I think it gets more beautiful, but also gets more challenging because these idols we have, these places where we often find our identity that we're not aware of until our blind start spots start getting exposed by other people, our toes start getting stepped on in ways. Again, ways it's supposed to happen among the people of God. When we're living life together as a diverse community. These are things that we need to realize that if the members of our church who make up the church ultimately find our identity in anything other than Jesus, we're going to be divided. Especially if the Lord begins to answer our prayers more and more and we begin to have more diversity in our church. If we, the members who make up Iron City Church, find our ultimate identity in anything other than Jesus, we will be divided. It's going to happen. But hear me, when I'm saying this, I'm not saying it's not good to know yourself. It's good to know thyself. It's good to know your family history. It's good for me to know that Hundreds of years ago now, my Welsh descendants immigrated to America and to be able to trace the line of knowing how my family got to where we are. It's good to know myself personally, the things that I like and dislike and things that energize me. It's good to know the reasons why I pull for the teams that I pull for. I mean, all those things are helpful for us, right? But the problem for us is not just when we identify, we find our identity in something that's sinful, The problem can be when we find our ultimate identity even in a good thing that's not Jesus. And I confess multiple times now through the years, one of the things that cancer revealed in me a few years ago is that I was finding my ultimate identity not in Jesus often. I was finding my identity more in being a pastor or more in how well I preached about Jesus on Sunday not actually in Jesus. And that caused sin in my life. Again, me, even just running at a pace that was unsustainable. It caused divisions in my life. I was not, I was often neglecting my family in order to try to care for people all the time. So people thought I was a great pastor. Again, when we're finding our identity in the wrong places, it leads to problems in our lives. And again, the closer it gets to maybe Us being able to baptize it as a pastor, or again, whatever it is, the more dangerous it is, the more deceptive it can be. We need to be able to step back and say, Where am I finding my ultimate identity? So, I mentioned to you for my sabbatical this summer, one of the joys was actually being able to read and work through a lot of books I desired to do for a long time that just kind of accumulate on my shelves. The last book I read was called The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers. And Mr. Rogers, it became clear in the book, his favorite theologian was a guy named Henry Nowen. And so seeing him quote Nowen and seeing his name pop up, I've been more interested in what Henry Nowen has to say. And I found from Henry Nowen five lies of identity that I shared in our sermon writing meeting on Thursday. And the people in the meeting thought it'd be really helpful for me to lay out these five lies of our identity that from Henry Nowen. So this is what they are. The first is I am what I have. First lie, I am what I have. Second lie, I am what I do. I am what I do. Third lie, I am what other people think of me. Fourth lie, I am nothing more than my worst moment. If you're familiar with Brian Stevenson, he has a very similar quote, right? The people have more value than the worst, the worst thing they've ever done, Right? Fourth, I am nothing more than my worst moment. Fifth, I'm nothing less than my best moment. So I am what I have first. I am what I do second. Third, I am what other people think of me. Fourth, I am nothing more than my worst moment. Fifth, I'm nothing less than my best moment. But in Jesus, all of this changes, right? Because in Jesus, we know that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we know that we've all failed. We also know that we can never be good enough or do anything big enough in order to earn God's favor. The scriptures tell us that in Jesus, we already have God's favor. We don't work in order to earn God's favor. We work because we already have God's favor. That difference makes the difference in everything. This is what Nouwen says. If you know that you are beloved of God, you can live with an enormous amount of success and an enormous amount of failure without losing your identity. Because your identity is that in Jesus, you are the beloved. Again, you can be successful in all kinds of ways. You can fail in all kinds of ways. But again, if you know who you are in Jesus, it changes everything. Here's another part of our main point if you find your ultimate identity in anything but Jesus, it will divide us. But if you find your ultimate identity in Jesus, nothing can ultimately divide us. Say that one more time. If you find your ultimate identity in anything but Jesus, it will divide us. But if you find your ultimate identity in Jesus, nothing can ultimately divide us. Cause here's the truth, brothers and sisters. Following Jesus does not make us uniform. Life would be very boring if following Jesus just turned us all into robots that follow him, right? We all look the same. We all talk the same. A part of the beauty of Jesus' kingdom is the diversity of it. Again, we're not called to be uniform, but we're called to be unified. There's to be unity in the midst of our diversity. People should look onto churches. Sociologists should look onto churches and not be able to explain why all these people love one another and treat each other like family, right? But so often that's not the case, And my prayer is that would increasingly not become the case at Iron City. Following Jesus does not make us uniform, but it is to make us unified. Again, we are praying that the Lord would bring more diversity into our church family and not just the kind of diversity that you or I are most passionate about. But as we see the Lord answer our prayers, as our church does diversify, again, it makes certain things Harder because we have to begin to deal with these things that we maybe we're unaware of where we often find our identity. And again, I think so much of this right now is politically. As a church, we have to be able to have hard conversations with one another. Again, when we ask the question of the great commandment, how do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Often that's connected politically and to policy and all kinds of things, right? And we need to be able to talk about those things to have discussions, even debate about those things. And there's gonna be certain things that we can disagree about as Christians and that's okay, but we have to be able to move together in love because our identity is ultimately in Jesus and we are going to spend eternity with one another in his kingdom. We must be able to, in love, deal with difficult things together as a family. Where are you finding your identity? Again, if it's, anywhere ultimately besides Jesus is going to lead to divisions in your life, even amongst Christians. But if it is ultimately in Jesus, then nothing ultimately can divide us. When we fail to find our identity in Jesus, it also leads us to be unfaithful with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus that he's entrusted to us. Look at starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What Paul's saying here is the message of the cross, that Jesus, God who took on flesh, became the God man, that he came and died for his people, that that is scandalous. So the message of the cross is foolishness to the world but it's the power of God to the people of God. It's the same message of the cross, but it functions like a magnet that repels some and attracts others. I think there's a temptation for Christians, especially for young Christians, to want to be accepted by the world or at least certain parts of the world, whoever we think the cool kids are. There's a temptation for us to begin to value what the world says over what God's word says. There's a danger for us, and again, in a land, a country that's been Christianized, as one culture philosopher said, we we live maybe not in the Bible Belt, but in the Christ-haunted South. In a place that's been Christianized, where again, maybe sometimes few people are actually following Jesus of Nazareth, we need to ask some hard questions. Because cultural Christianity can take many different shapes and forms, can it? You've got a Fox News, Christianity, a CNN, Christianity, and neither of these can save, right? You can fill in the blank with all other kinds of versions of Christianity that again may have their own version of Jesus, but not Jesus of Nazareth, not the Jesus of the scriptures. And I wanna contend, brothers and sisters, if you are faithfully following Jesus of Nazareth, you're gonna make both of those groups mad. You're gonna be counted a fool and have all kinds of things said about you by all kinds of people. The message of the cross here, it says, is foolishness to the world. The world doesn't wanna hear that they can't save themselves. The world doesn't wanna hear that they need anyone to save them. Remember, Jesus said, They will hate you because of me. But also, hear me, Jesus did not say, They will hate me because of you. Don't be a jerk, all right? The gospel is offensive enough. Be bold in sharing it, but be gracious in sharing it. Preach the gospel. Some people will get mad at you, no matter how gracious you are. Some people get mad and other people will get saved. The message of the cross is foolishness to some, but the power of God to others. You know what makes the difference? Not you. The spirit of God. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead makes a difference. Can come and take dead people and make them alive like he took someone who was dead like you, spiritually dead, Paul says in Ephesians 2, and made you alive together with Christ. The spirit can use sinful, broken, messed up people like you and me, simply sharing a message of good news. That God has made a way for sinners to be reconciled to him. united to him and to one another. You can simply share that and a resurrection can happen. You don't have to change the message. You don't have to make it more palatable. We do need to become all things to all people. If you wanna share the gospel with someone who's an international student, maybe try to work on learning their language, right? Maybe learn things that are not culturally offensive to them. Again, don't be a jerk. But ultimately, it's God who raised the dead. It's God who saves people. And may God use us to do that so that we, again, can find our identity in the right place and share this good news with those around us. The gospel message is a stumbling block to Jews and follow to Gentiles. And that's everybody in the biblical world, right? Jews and Gentiles, that's everybody. But Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And Paul continues this theme in the last section where we'll finish. He says, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Again, if you've ever been tempted to think that you're something because of your salvation, Paul gives us a humbling word here. He tells us to consider your calling. Another thing that unites us as followers of Jesus is that most of us are not that impressive. Paul says that few Christians are considered wise and powerful of noble birth. There are a few. There's a noble woman from hundreds of years ago who commented on this verse that said that she was saved by an M. She said, I'm so thankful St. Paul didn't say there aren't any, but there aren't many who are of noble birth. So there are a few, but not many of us are of noble birth. Not many of us are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of us have the kind of worldly power that the world desires. The Lord sovereignly chosen a message and a people to shame the wisdom of the world, to silence all human boasting before him. So Taylor Miller, one of our new college ministry residents is wonderful. She was in our sermon writing meeting this week, and we're talking about how to apply this text most faithfully to our people. And I think she helpfully pointed out that, I think she's right, that I think there is often an idol of knowledge in our church. And it is really important for us to know about God, right? We can't worship the God of the Bible if we don't know true things about him. But it's not enough just to know about God. We must know him. We should never say, if you're in Christ, that you are better or smarter than other people. But you should say what Paul says in verse 30. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And hear me as we begin to close here. I I know there are some people in our day that pridefully find their identity in their sin, but I don't think that's the majority struggle in this room. I do feel like as your pastor that has conversations with many of you, that many of you are struggling not to find your identity and your sin, but that's not an issue of pride, it's an issue of shame. Many of you, first and foremost, view yourself as a sinner because you're still struggling with the same sin you were struggling with 10 years ago. It's made you begin to question Do I actually love Jesus? Am I really following Him? Again, you deal with all kinds of shame, all kinds of guilt for these things. Again, if that's you, I think you need to remember afresh from 1 Corinthians 1 over and over again of who you actually are in Jesus. First and foremost, you're not a sinner, you're a saint. You're one who's been sanctified, you're righteous. That's ultimately and eternally who you are if you're in Jesus. If you have been united Jesus through faith, everything that's true of him is now true of you. That's who you are positionally. And again, that should begin to change who we are practically, but that's often a really slow and difficult and messy process. And before we begin to change, again, we need to preach to ourselves and we need to preach to one another, remind us of who we ultimately are. you are a saint, you've been sanctified. This means that again, maybe you're not the smartest or maybe you are and the world makes you feel like a fool for following Jesus. You need to remember that Jesus is your wisdom from God. If you're struggling and stumbling over your sin this week, you need to remember that Jesus is your righteousness and sanctification, If you're feeling weak and helpless, weary and heavy laden, you need to remember that's exactly who Jesus came to save. And remember that Jesus is your redemption, that you can rest in him. And all these things are true. All these things that verse 30 say about us are true so that those who boast may boast in him, may boast in Jesus. Jesus didn't come to save people who think they're good enough to boast in themselves. If you know that you're a sinner and you have no hope of saving yourself, Jesus would say you are close to the kingdom even if you've never trusted in him. But if you have trusted in him and you know yourself to be a sinner that can never save yourself, again, know that you are already a saint. You are already righteous. You are already sanctified. Remember who you are in Christ Jesus. And then begin to pray for grace, to begin to believe it and live like this is true. And if we do that by the Lord's grace and spirit, I think it will begin to keep us from sin in our lives per- personally and begin to keep us more and more from divisions corporately. So let's look to Jesus, brothers and sisters, our ultimate identity. And when we boast, let's boast in him. Let me pray, Lord, give us grace to do that. Oh, Father, we need your help. Send the helper, send your spirit to give us grace to look away from ourselves to look away from our sins and to look to Jesus, the only one who can save us. Father, we wanna be able to say with Paul on the final day that we have a righteousness, not in ourselves. It's not found in ourselves, but to be found in Jesus, hidden in him. A righteousness not come through the law, does not come through our performance, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. So I pray that by your grace, that all of us in here would be found in the final day, on the final day, being united Jesus through faith. But until that day, Father, give us grace to be faithful, to live every day in light of the final day, to remember who we are in Jesus. And I pray as we remember that we would begin to put off the old self more and more and to walk in light of who we actually are what is eternally and ultimately true of us in Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.